Hello everybody, this is Two Guys Five Movies, this is one of your co-hosts Chris. This is Frank. And this week we are going to be going through a list that Frank himself created, which is the top five counterculture movies of all time. Um, Frank, I've been thinking about this a lot as I've been watching these movies that you've recommended, and um, I was a little confused at the beginning when you first gave me the idea for it. Can you describe like what you mean by counterculture, um, or alternatively counterculture movie? Um, so originally my idea for this came from watching a George Romero film called Night Riders, which is about like these bikers who pretend to be King Arthur's court basically. And they live this freewheeling lifestyle. And I started thinking about movies from generally either set in or taking place during a time period from like the late sixties through like the early eighties that deal with people who at the time the movie was made were considered like marginal members of society or maybe like outliers in terms of how society viewed people. Um, I mean, one of the common themes that runs through this, these movies is that idea of these people who were not really like, don't really live a normal lifestyle. Like they don't, I don't know, like subscribe to common social mores, I suppose. Um, there was a lot of other stuff. Like when I first started, like again, I was inspired by the Knight Riders movie and started thinking about other films that I sort of felt take a look at like those different kinds of like groups or people. Um, yeah, and just really like, I don't know, anything that, that focuses on that lifestyle without it being like, like a hundred percent satirical or even though there's a lot of satire in a lot of these movies, it's, something where it's uh, almost like an insider's view. Although one of these movies is not that at all, but like people, I think they were making movies about like a culture that they were familiar with, so to speak. So each one, we'll have to talk about the culture of each movie. I'm assuming right. is what will end up having to happen. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything before we start getting into this list then that, um, because I'm, I'm excited to get into, the, into these movies just because um, I want to say all but one I had seen before. So most of them were rewatches for me. Um, but it's a it's a weird list. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like, you know, a, a standard. It um, changed a couple times, but, too. Like, yeah. And uh, that's what I was going to ask is, like, what what came closer like you know what what other movies might have made this list like given circumstances so like i said night riders was there and i thought about that and that was the original inspiration and night riders made me think of this movie called um what is it called psychomania i guess which is like a satanic cult bike biker movie um but i don't know if that's like a real like actual like subset of people Mm -hmm. um stuff like hair and jesus christ superstar um, um, more like esoteric things like uh, Eraserhead and like Jodorowsky's movies. Like I, El Topo was originally on this list because um, I love that movie. But like watching it again, I, I couldn't really connect a real like like set of people that would actually exist that would be part of that. I mean, it's that's more of a list of like top like psychedelic or I don't know abstract surreal movies. I don't know. Um, the Wild Ones, you know, uh, Easy Rider, that kind of stuff I thought okay. about. Um, I also kind of thought about stuff like like Streetcar Named Desire, sort of. Um, 
whatever happened to baby Jane, like those kind of things where it's like people who the grifters is another one that I thought of sort of like people that they exist like there, you could find like a real world, you know, um, parallel to those people. So it's just like a dramatization of something that could actually happen. Uh, But ultimately I settled on these because I feel like these are, you know, these are films that don't necessarily easily fall into any other genre. Like you can't call them like the grifters. You can say is a crime movie. Um, again, stuff like Eraserhead, that's like more of like a surrealist, like nightmare type right. movie. Um, and even like the whole idea of like the biker movies, while I feel like they're all could be like, especially Easy Rider could be relevant on this list. I, I kind of feel like that's its own genre of itself and is very specific about like that culture. Like that whole genre is mm-hmm. very specific about that culture. Um, and like stuff like Naked one of my favorite movies of all time that like, you know, this guy, the main character is like, does kind of fit that description. But again, it's more of like a, like a tour de force, like acting performance and less of like an ensemble movie about, I don't know that culture. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't think I've done this before, but I wanted to kind of just kind of throw some and have you give kind of spontaneous quick reactions to some of these movies. Okay. <clears throat> Cause I've done some research, um, there's not many of these lists that exist like out there, but I've just kind of like, you know, went through the internet and like went through and pulled some movies that I wondered like, okay, I wonder how Frank would react to them. Um, so Easy Rider is one of them. Mm-hmm. What do what you, you, you think about Easy Rider overall? Because some of these might never make a list, I'm not sure. I, I like Easy Rider okay. Um, I think Easy Rider is a little... <clears throat> there, there's a lot of forgiveness to Easy Rider because people... I mean, number one, it's got really great performances, but I think people just kind of like the ideology behind it. Um, I mean, it's it's a good movie, but it's not even like my favorite biker movie. Um, Ghost World. Ghost World is interesting. Like, I, I love Ghost World. Um, again, I think that to me, like, movies like Ghost World, and there's like another one that I think is a good comparison to Ghost World is Trees Lounge. Okay. From around the same yeah. time period, yeah. um, I mean, certainly, like they fit, but those those people are more marginalized because they're socially awkward, mm-hmm. and not necessarily because of like choices they've made or like things beyond their control, like addiction or sexual orientation, which to me is like a big part of you know. I mean, just being, like, a weirdo, I don't know if that's necessarily, like, puts you in a, a um, counterculture movement. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That's a good choice. That's a little, I'm going to say it's a little, like, too over the top for me. Um, I like that movie, but it's not a movie that I really think about a lot, so. Um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm. I think that's more satire. It's hard for me to put musicals on a list, even though we've included musicals in other lists before. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, musicals are their own thing. Which, again, so, like, I, I think Hair, in a lot of ways, is, like, a perfect movie for this list. But in a lot of ways, it's not because it's a musical and everything is set up to carry the action from one song to the next. I mean, I, I think Hedwig is fantastic, but it's... 
It would be on another list. Uh, SFW. I don't. I don't know if I've ever seen them. Oh, okay. What is that? Um, what is that? Early nineties. How oh, we corrected that? Can't remember. I don't know. I don't know what that is. All right. Um, what was it? Dazed and Confused. Just like Ghost World, I, I kind of think that that's, I mean, like, movies that are set around, like, school settings, mm-hmm. they're their own, their own thing to okay. me. All right. I think that every, like, everyone, everyone has been in school, right? And there's things from both Ghost World and Dazed and Confused that you can kind of relate to your own life, mm-hmm. even if not in, like, the specifics of what's happening, like, maybe in, like, feelings that they talk about or, like, some vague correlation to a situation that's happened in your own life, so... A lot of the movies that we're going to, all five movies we're going to talk about now, I think that most people probably can't, like, immediately relate to those things. Mm-hmm. Like, most people that have lived, like, quote-unquote, like, normal existences right. in terms of, gotcha. you know, whatever, your upbringing, nuclear family, even, like, beyond that, you know, just, like, being, like, a person in the world, like, you don't necessarily fall into these. Okay. Um... So, before we move into lists, I just wanted to uh, remind everybody that if you wanted to send us your own list you can email us at two guys five movies at gmail.com that's number two and five two guys five movies at gmail.com you can also like us on facebook um so let's jump into this list now at number five we are looking at beyond the valley of the dolls 1970 film directed by russ meyer famously written by roger ebert um starring dolly reed cynthia meyer john lazar david Gurian. It has a 75% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72% from audiences. Um, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie? Let me say, first of all, that's crazy that that critic score is that high. Yeah. There's got to be a lot of like revisionists. I'm sure that's the overall <laughs> aggregate score throughout the time period. If you go back and look at the um, contemporary reviews, it's a different story. Yeah. Um, so three buxom young women... Uh, are in a rock band called The Kelly Affair, um, managed by the lead singer Kelly's boyfriend, um, Harris. Um, they, I guess they appear to have like some small like modicum of success playing like small venues, but they decide they want to travel to LA to sort of maybe try their luck and become more successful. Um, Kelly's aunt, who she's been estranged from, lives in LA and has inherited like a huge fortune. Um, so... They go out, meet the aunt. Um, the aunt introduces them to this guy, Z-Man, who's like a Svengali-esque like, record producer. Um, throws these wild parties. Um, he becomes infatuated with uh, the Kelly Affair and changes her name to the Kerry Nations. Um, they all start to do a lot of drugs and drink a lot, and there's a lot of like... You know, Kelly and Harris sort of break up because Kelly starts sleeping with this gigolo and Harris becomes like a drunk and a drug addict. And I don't know, this is a bunch of relationships happen. Mm-hmm. Um, all like culminating in basically one of the weirdest, like almost like screeching halt change of paces from being like a, I don't know, like almost a soap opera to becoming a horror movie, Mm -hmm. in essence. Like at the end of the movie where Z-Man is revealed to be a transgender and murders, or I guess a transsexual, maybe. um, Starts murdering people at his house, like because he freaks out. Um, 
Harris is, ends up a paraplegic at one point because he tries to kill himself. And there's a lot of really weird things that happen. Um, and no one is necessarily like a quote-unquote good person in it, although there are some people that are a little better than others. Um, which is one thing that we'll talk about. Like, yes, yeah, Susan's Susan is better than the others. Yes. Later. <clears throat> Susan Lake? Yeah, Susan Lake, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm making a joke at the end of the movie where it's like... Um, her failing was that she was possibly too good. That right. was the joke at the end of that movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, the reason that it is included on this list from my perspective, and there's a couple of reasons. The first one, um, we talk a lot about Ebert's reviews. And when I was thinking about these kind of movies, like I, I love Russ Meyer. I think Russ Meyer is probably one of the greatest independent like filmmakers and producers of all time. Um, his niche is big bosomed women, basically. Um, but in a way where it's not like the typical like sex exploitation of the sixties and seventies, like it's actually strong female characters who tend to be able to stand up for themselves and make their own decisions and typically come out ahead of like the men that are around them. Like there's it's not a lot of just like idol worship of like naked women. It's more about like female empowerment and stuff, which I always find interesting in his movies. Um, Cause he made movies for a really long time. Um, but also the whole idea of like the drug culture of that surrounds like the entertainment industry in Hollywood and just how people are willing to like go to whatever lengths to secure like their own personal success um, while imbibing like, you know, copious amounts of alcohol and, like psycho psychedelic drugs and whatnot um and also you know it touches a lot on <clears throat> the idea of like monogamy and does monogamy matter um homosexuality both in the terms of like like true homosexuality between uh roxanne and um uh, casey the one of the band members um this implied homosexuality from z-man that then turns into that he's a transgender, which is like a really, one of the, like, in the modern age, one of the things you look back upon and kind of cringe a little bit. And the idea that, like, the transgender person is a murderer, basically has mm -hmm. these murderous impulses sure. because they're hiding who they are, mm -hmm. um, probably would not be written that way today, I sure. wouldn't think. Sure. Um, but still interesting that, like, they would include a character like that in what was, you know, I mean, Fo this is like a Fox Studios release, like sure. a major like studio release in the 70s um and to include like all of those things is pretty uh pretty pretty bold and i'm assuming it has to be inspired by the manson murders considering the time frame like within a year it's it's it has to be like maybe the first movie that's like released that has like a like the idea killing like, like a, that yeah. like you know in 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 hollywood like you know um so i'm assuming it had to be someone inspired by them i mean yeah maybe <clears throat> It's weird that it's written since, you know, Ebert at the time is a film critic in sure. Chicago. Yeah. I mean, he's not really, I don't know. Although a big proponent of Russ Meyer. Well, right, yeah. yeah. But not, like, involved at all in Hollywood necessarily. This is long before their television show. Sure. So it's a guy who's a first-time screenwriter writing about things he doesn't really know about. And I guess you can kind of see that a little bit in the sense that it's, it feels like a guy that watched a bunch of stuff like um, 
Easy Rider and whatnot, and mm-hmm. was like, okay, well, this is what you Easy know. Rider. And I mean, and then the things that he's mocking in terms of soap operas right. and the Partridge Family. I think you know, like yeah. I mean, like things like that that were con- like the monkeys, maybe. Right. Like I mean, that, like those kind of things that he certainly. Yeah, um, definitely the the Kelly affair slash Carrie Nations is sort of a send up of. Like that idea of the prefab rock group that, right. you know, this producer kind of changes and makes his own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because the first song they sing and the song they sing later is this ridiculously melodramatic, like, song about the crimson sky and the fire from, I don't know, it's just yeah. this terrible, like, 60s parody of, I don't know, Jefferson Airplane maybe or something. Sure. Um, yeah. And then they change into more of, like, a poppy... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, almost uh, like Ronette's style with like a rock background to it. Um, Really weird movie. Uh, Beautifully shot by Russ Meyer. Like the colors in this movie Mm -hmm. are insane. Like how bright and everything pops. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume that he filmed with a lot of like filters because almost all of the scenes that take place at night really looked like they were filmed during the day with just, like, blackout filters over the lens to make it appear to be night. Um, just because of the way that, like, the characters always look, like, very, um... Not foggy, necessarily, but, like, shaded when you're looking at them. The scene with, um... The porn star and Harris on the beach when she's right. standing over him. Again, another, like, really amazing scene where you have this woman, you know, who's a pornographic actress, and that is like thrown in her face several times but mm-hmm. she's never a weak character no. or she's never made like her actions and her words is that she's proud of what she does and mm-hmm. she's okay with it and mm-hmm. she's never made to be anything but like a strong-willed you know like empowered woman except which is, for i mean it's certainly implied though that she's an nymphomaniac which is like a Sure. Goes to, you know, motivation for, of course, like, porn actresses have to be nymphomaniacs. I mean, but at um, the same time, she's legitimately trying to have, like... But I agree, she's strong. A, a relationship, like, regardless of how you view whatever the character motivation for their relationship, mm. she's trying to have, like, a monogamous relationship with with Harris. And he just refuses because he's yeah drunk and high yeah. constantly. He can't sexually perform sure. and he's just really boring to her and she doesn't want him to be boring um I don't know it's boring is a really good word I mean uh, that is Harris to his core right. is he's, he's incredibly like, boring he's such a square yeah. like just in every way he's just he's a guy that was in love with a girl and right. it all fell apart and they well it's to... like but it's like I mean that's the uh that's the comedy of it I think is like they make him a square in every single way and all the worst things happened to Harris right. just because, and it's like, you know, the, just because he was in love with the girl and lost another, her. Like. Another interesting thing, too, is that, you mm-hmm. know, Harris commits, like, date rape, basically, against Casey um, about midway through the movie. Sure. And they don't shy away from basically naming it as date rape and sure. not, like, excusing, oh, they were just drunk. I mean, it's like, um, you know, you have all this, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like, controversy now with stuff like baby it's cold outside and mm-hmm. the idea that it's like implied that she's being held against her will and right everyone always talks about well like you know that was a different time and people like looked at things differently and it's it's interesting just to see a movie that basically says like okay well that's not necessarily true like people looked at that stuff as being like he took advantage of a woman in a bad state and did right. something that was you know like 
almost unforgivable in some people's eyes because a lot of people like in, I mean, it's very brief it's only like maybe I don't know three scenes where it's discussed but sure. people definitely like are against Harris for doing that yeah. and including Harris himself who I think feels oh yeah definitely feels guilt or like whatever. yeah like tremendous guilt for having done it yeah um, but yeah it's it's a movie that like to watch it just as a straight film I think it's difficult to not to. It, it's difficult to take like completely seriously, and it doesn't want to be taken seriously. But it's so. I don't know. It's it exists so much in its own universe that even the things that it's referring to, it sort of gets wrong in its parody of things. I guess I don't even know how else to say it. Like it, it definitely feels like. Like, the whole joke about, you know, how you have, like, the people pretending to be the bots. Like, I fed this bot a thousand hours of, you know, Olive Garden commercials. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, that's what this feels like, is you have somebody that watched a thousand movies about the 60s and made this movie based just upon, like, not real-life experiences, but, like, the thousand movies that they watched mm-hmm. about these experiences. So, I don't know. But it's incredibly enjoyable, I think, to watch. It's a lot of fun. Um, Really just weird at times and some really funny, like, lines in it and some incredibly bad acting that goes beyond just even being bad acting to the point where it's, like, almost... It's it's almost good. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's so over the top. John Lazar as Z-Man is... Like this, and I'm saying this slightly tongue in cheek, but it's like this brilliant performance <clears throat> where it's so over the top in terms of its villainy mm. that it's not good by any conventional standard whatsoever. But in the universe that's been created there, it's exactly what it needs to be. Right. And it's like, and I don't know how to reconcile those two things, but. It's really good for that, yeah. that movie itself. The funny thing is, for being a parody, or like maybe even just like social commentary of the time, you know, in in Russ Meyer, you have a director who was sort of doing this like his entire film career, where he would take a popular genre and he would film it in a way that was titillating because that was his bread and butter, but sure. was also like sort of a parody you know, whatever, like, society. Like, you have something like, um... The movie that, that almost made this list and really was, like, the one that I was going to pick was, um, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Uh-huh. It's one of my favorite, um... I don't know, like, B-grade... I don't know what you would call it. Like, exploitation movies uh-huh. from the 50s. Um... But just, like, taking that whole, like, biker, race car driver thing and, first of all, like, changing... The genders of the antagonists to be women which was pretty you know like the main characters in this movie are all like female for the most part and to do that in a way i don't know it's it's all very purposeful but also very like it seems very innocent like even though there's like tons of like nudity and drug use and violence and like a lot of implied i don't know like rape and sex uh, just all kinds of like terrible things like it's done in a way 
that doesn't it ever feels sleazy to me like i don't know how mm-hmm. to say that it just it feels like you're watching like a fairy tale that just happens to have like a lot of boobs mm-hmm. in it i don't mm-hmm. know it's a really yeah. weird movie yeah. but really entertaining I, I i found this interesting i think this is one of the ones because i think i watched the second um <clears throat> out of these five movies when i was watching them and I think it was the, one of the number of times I kind of got confused about the counterculture aspect. Cause, and it, I think this confused me because it's an outlier on this list in the sense of how the director treats the counterculture. In this movie specifically, that's a parody right. of the counterculture where, and I think that's one of the interesting things is to look at th- these movies too, maybe in the context of how does director convey the counterculture in the movie like is there sympathy there is there no sympathy is there some sympathy? you know um and this one has no sympathy whatsoever to it seems to me necessarily with that counterculture um they have sympathy with certain characters that right. are, are hurt by the you know activities of that counterculture i would say see i i i feel i mean okay so it's not like a sympathetic look but I also feel like it's not really a damning look either at it. Like, I don't know that there's a whole lot of... I mean, it's their their personal choices that are what would what, what doom all of them. The only thing that I think is kind of, like, damning, and I don't necessarily understand it, is the idea that, that the lesbians have to pay for being lesbians, basically. Like, mm-hmm. Roxanne and Casey are honestly, like, the two... I mean, aside from Susan, Susan Lake, um, they're the two characters that are really just, like, they don't really hurt anybody, they don't really do anything bad, they're kind of just, like, living their lives, and they're in love with each other, and it's just be- because they're gay, like, they die, which is a really weird... Yeah. It's, it, it's really weird considering you look at Ebert, and since we talk about Ebert, a lot on here um it's it's interesting to look at ebert himself and the writing of this and a lot of the things you mentioned like kind of coincide with him as reviewer like in the sense of like he's pretty um woke given the the 2018 like you know yeah term in terms of treating women with respect and all these things um we saw that when we talked about david lynch and you know um, Blue Velvet, like, and how upset he right. was about, like, the way that Rossellini was, you know, um, treated. Um, I'll put air quotes around that. Because um, I think if you go back to that episode, Cisco makes a pretty good defense, and I think you make a pretty good defense of, um, of that. But, I mean, but Ebert was very upset about that. And um, we see that in other movies, the way that women are treated in these movies, and I think it's consistent with his writing here. But given... Um, Obviously, I think some of the socially liberal views of Ebert that you uh, kind of crept in through the, you know, as we've been talking about him and I've been reading a lot more of Ebert. Um, it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Like, you know, I don't know how to reconcile that. Not, not only that, but like there's a lot other small <clears throat> things in it, too. So you've got um, Randy Black, I think, the boxer, yeah. who's obviously Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And is portrayed in such, like, a negative light that this I man agree. who's, yeah, I mean, he's he's a, a, a pugilist and he's, mm-hmm. like, you know, the world champ or whatever, but he's a, a rapist and he's, like, abusive and he's willing to 
Not like even. basically like murder another man just to have sex with this woman. I thought and the same thing. Yeah. It's really kind of uncomfortable that yeah. like I'm curious what But I mean one of the other things maybe this does reconcile now that I think about it. Despite all that, we also know that Ebert's a reactionary. Yeah. Um and that certainly coincides with the reaction to Ali across the country, um during that time period. I mean, most people hated Muhammad Ali. So like most white people specifically yeah. hated Muhammad Ali. But there's also two strong black characters in the movie. There like, are, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Pet, Pet yeah. Um, Emerson, her boyfriend. Like, Emerson is a, a law student, and, you know, he's kind and courteous and generous. And I don't know, maybe he just needed to have, like, that foil, and maybe they thought it was too much to have, like, a white character be the one that was having maybe. sex with a black character. Maybe, maybe. Like, maybe they felt that that was too controversial because, you know, still, even to this day, like, there's a lot of racial tension. But back then, the idea of, like, a white man and a black woman or vice versa, like, being together would have been, yeah, like, you know, somewhat. I mean, it's, it's I guess it's after, guess you know, like, guess who's coming to dinner or whatever. Um, but still, like, that's yeah. still very um, taboo at that time um, to do a um, popular film. Um, so, like I said, like, early critics, I mean, obviously panned this movie. Right. Like, uh, overall, like, you know, <clears throat> the variety review of this at the time, like, pretty much sums up, like, pretty much all the criticism of the time. Basically, that it's trashy, that it's, you know... Right. gaudy, it's unfunny. Um, <clears throat> um, which, uh, oddly, Vincent Canby, um, is a little bit more open to the movie. Uh, which I find interesting because Camby never seems the type that's really he's always fair. I'll give him that, right. like you know. But it's um <clears throat> and and respectful. But uh, he, he he from learning more about Camby and his reviews and his mindset, I was a little surprised that he was so open to this movie. <clears throat> um, he says there's so much lovemaking in the film that to squeeze it all in, Meyer must cut between seductions nonstop. Uh, there is a funny, fast, typically Meyer montage of Los Angeles sites, bare breast shacks, bare breast freeways, bare breasts, and never a moment of silence. When the soundtrack is not pulsating with rock, it is moaning with a soap opera organ just to let us know that it is supposed to be funny. Sometimes it is funny, such as when the narrator at the end piously enumerates the failings of each character. Um, but overall, he says that the movie's just, like, really not very funny. So, um... How do you feel, like, you know, in terms of, like... Because this is a pretty common one, and I think Camby does it somewhat well there. But it's like he acknowledges that there are some funny things, but overall it's just not that funny. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... There are things in this movie that, that make me laugh. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it's... I don't know that it's satire and, like, the haha. Kind of way, like uh -huh. Austin Powers satire. Right. Sure. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to ape a soap opera, I think, in a lot of ways, with like breasts and sex and drugs and I don't know. I mean, he he gets the point, but I think he also misses the point mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, like, when I first saw this movie, um, it was when I was, I was probably like 17 or 18, and I was watching through like all of Russ Meyer's movies that I could find. Um, and there was nothing good about this movie, like, critically. This mm -hmm. is, like, you know, 93, 94, somewhere around there. Like, this movie mm -hmm. was consistently on, like, the worst movies of all time lists. Um, 
critically panned, like when you would read about it in, you know, the Time Life books or like any like literature about movies of the 70s, like it was always talked about how terrible this film was. And to hear like 75% positive on Rotten Tomatoes is crazy that in 25 years, like the perception of this movie has changed so much. I mean, I I loved it when I first saw it. Yeah. Like, I really liked this movie a lot. I, I'll be honest. I didn't pay it much mind the first time I saw it. Um, it was just whatever. I got the joke, I th- thought. But, like, watching it again, I enjoyed it more. I don't know how much I enjoyed it more, but I enjoyed it yeah. more. Like, I, it wasn't painful to sit through. It went pretty fast. It's not extremely long movie whatsoever. Um, yeah. But I, I think I, like, have enough... Um, understanding maybe maybe more understanding of the culture of that time period um because i probably haven't seen this in close to 20 years um i have more understanding of the time period now to where i see maybe more the comedy that's coming out now like the satire um you know and the even in the like really subtle things i also didn't realize they rip a Austin Powers line from this movie and i didn't catch that they do this is my happening and it freaks me out yeah and it freaks me out man yeah um but um Delivered with, like, such earnest glee by Z-Man in this movie. Sure. Like, Austin I, Powers is doing it as 100%, like, it's 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 reverential to this film, but it's it's a joke. It's all, yeah, right, it's a joke, but he also, the inflection is exactly the same when um, Mike Myers delivers that line. And I, I think that. it's curious, so again, it's like my whole, like, you know, Roger Ebert is the bot that got fed, like, a thousand, like, hippie movies mm-hmm. that probably thought that was pretty good dialogue mm-hmm. for somebody to be saying like mm-hmm. that's that again like that's it i call it innocence it's not necessarily innocence maybe it's like na- naivete sure that they think that like okay like i'm writing people how they like would speak right and it's not it's like not. it's just so over the top i mean it's, and, in fact it feels like austin powers at times right like it's 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 almost it's almost a cliche, even though this is 1970, like, yeah. in terms of how they act and how they talk. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the melodrama of it, like, which is it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. Like, you know, the um, when um, the Carrie Nations are on, like, the Ed Sullivan-esque television show and go to sing the song, and Harris throws, right. himself, throws from himself from the rafters. And not like, even from, like, the first set of rafters. Right. Like, Harris is in, like another upper set of rafters so he's got to fall like really far and it's like i you know it's like it's one of those things like somebody trying to commit suicide like you know like shouldn't be funny but it's like it's so over the top and absurd that i laughed you know like um and then of course he becomes a paraplegic at that point and like it's just all the worst things happen to harris um i i love like what can be references is like how you have like at the end like who, what everybody's failings were. Right, you you right. get told That's the moral really of the story. Susan Licht. Yeah. Maybe she was too good. Too good. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's hilarious. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really thought this was good. And I actually, I thought, I thought it was, um, I thought it was really well filmed. Yeah. Like it's, it, it's a beautiful movie. It's, it's, it's well, like the, 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 the scenes are set well, like, you know, every, everything's like done like extraordinarily well. Like, Overall, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but it's solid. Yeah, like yeah. it's it's a solid movie. It's definitely enjoyable, and I think that like especially now, because a lot of it that would have been really risque at the time is a lot more quaint. Sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I I think it's a movie that a lot of people could sit down and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think it was a little ahead of the time, probably. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean... Well, again, Russ Meyer was def- was 100% just making sex movies. Right. Like, for his entire career, so... Yeah. I mean... Uh, yeah. Right. Just made a sex movie at a major, major studio. Right. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number four on the list. Um, which is Desperate Living from 1977. Uh, it is uh, Baltimore's own John Waters directed the movie. Uh, stars Liz Renee. Mink Stoll, Edith Massey, Gene Hill. has a 70% of Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 80% from audiences. Did you want to go ahead and uh, explain this movie to those who have not seen it? Uh, So, Peggy Gravel is a recently released mental patient, a housewife who's neurotic, um, somewhat, like, paranoid, delusional about things. Uh Uh-huh. Um, afraid of her children, uh, afraid of her husband, afraid of everyone. Um, her nurse, uh, Griselda, is caught possibly stealing money from Bosley, who's her husband. Uh, Griselda ends up smothering Bosley to death, and her and Peggy have to go on the lam. Um, they're, I don't know, captured by a cross-dressing police officer who wants to take their panties from them. Um, and ultimately gives them the choice of going to jail or going to live in a community called Mortville, uh, which is where the outcasts and rejects go to live, um, the scum of the earth, basically. So they take that offer. Uh, Mortville is this shanty town in the hills of Baltimore, um, run by Queen Carlotta, uh, who's played by Edith Massey in a really disgusting <laughs> role. Um... They fall in with a lesbian wrestler and her girlfriend. Um, I don't know. Like, Peggy never really wants to be there. Peggy's very... Despite the fact that she's, you know, been an accessory to murder, um, still has this kind of, like, high-minded, uppity housewife, like, bourgeois perspective on things. Um Queen Carlotta has a daughter who's kind of like a rebel and she kills her daughter's boyfriend and then decides that she wants to unleash rabies on the town to like kill everybody. Um, She's attended to by like a, I don't know, a harem of leather boys Mm -hmm. who are always having sex with her. Yeah. That she commands to have sex with her. Yeah, but they kind of seem like they're into it. You know, like, um... Right. There's Baltimore accents, like, yeah, asking her if she wants it. or I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, like, what happens just when you're... That's your job. Yeah. Um, really, like, uncomfortable scenes, like, uh... uh Mole, who's the wrestler, um... Steals a lottery ticket from Griselda and wins the Maryland State Lottery and uses a $1,000 to get a get transgender surgery and have a penis put on her that then freaks out Muffy who's her girlfriend who cuts mole or mole cuts her or, yeah, penis she, off yeah because she thinks that Muffy wants a man even though Muffy right. doesn't want a man and she's just trying to make her jealous right um god I don't know there's glory holes and and glory holes for breasts for breasts is, yeah, right yeah. Um, Peggy ends, has sex with Griselda at one point and seems to be kind of into it, but yeah. then it's like, 
it seems like it's more just the circumstance and she yeah. immediately wants to go back to <clears throat> like to the point where she um falls in with Carlotta right. and like helps to capture everyone but then that like in 10 seconds like I don't know the tables are turned and I don't know it's a weird movie so what I find fascinating is like the three minutes that you just like kind of went over the overview of this movie is most people would just be horrified by the description of this movie yeah and there's people that would sit there and hear that then maybe have never heard of this before and would run out to go find it like immediately right I think you should huh? <laughs> um <clears throat> So, is is this the Thanksgiving night movie? Or was it Desperate Living? Was it this or Polyester? Hmm. I don't feel like it was Polyester. I think it was this movie then. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So, I had gotten the Waters movie. box set. Yeah. And Rhino, Rhino, I think, Rhino Films, released a box set of Waters stuff. So, it was this, Multiple Maniacs, Pink Flamingos... Female Trouble and Polyester, maybe were the five, uh-huh. I think. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so we watched one of them. Yeah. I, I I seem to think it was... I think it was this one. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, anyway, they're yeah. all good. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. I mean, do you want to talk just a little bit about John Waters? Like, just because... I don't know when John Waters is going to show up on this list again. And there's people that out there that might not know who John Waters is. Like... John Waters is... Uh, I mean, in my opinion, he's he's a brilliant artist, uh, Baltimore-based yeah. um, cinephile who takes great pleasure in showing, I mean, showing like counterculture, like people who would not normally be encountered in daily culture and then exaggerating the things about them almost to become scary to someone who lives in the suburbs, like this is what exists like outside of your worldview and sort of like brings those ideas into all of his films. You know, the ideas of like transsexualism, transgender, homosexuality, drug use, free sex, um, fetishes. Like he's really big on the idea that people have fetishes and exaggerates them to like almost a comic extreme, but is still talking about the fact that like, you know, this is these are things that people just do right like there are people like i mean you know edith massey and i think it's pink flamingos is the egg lady yes um where she's like sexually aroused by eggs mm-hmm. and actually i don't know anymore there probably is something that people are sexually aroused by but um you know i mean it's it's just a fetish like sure. and in in mortville like no one aside from carlotta who's ostensibly you know just a normal person like she's a heterosexual she's using her power to like make her life better and like screw over these other people who are basically it's like a freak show kind of where mm-hmm. she lives um she kind of does represent like the establishment like people that oh are, yeah she represents the establishment capitalism like i mean um she's a gluttonous yeah you know white heterosexual that is definitely representing um but the other people, like all the, the higher places, all the people that live and are just doing their own thing, like honestly, none of them are hurting anybody else. They're just, I mean, they're poor and they're living in this crazy, like ridiculous shanty town, but mm-hmm. they're not really harming anyone. They're no. just like living outside of society's, you know, like reach, basically. So, I mean, it's a brilliant way for 
there's things I, you know, I have mixed feelings about John Waters. I right. mean, but it's like, um, but I mean, it's brilliant in some ways that he's able to take. He's on such a low budget that he's able to basically move away from the neighborhoods, from the city, all that stuff, take right. it to this farm of his friends that he filmed it on. And I don't know if you know this, like him and his friend just went around and gathered up junk from around town. And yeah. It was like, yeah. and then took it out to the farm to film, like and create Mortville. So like the, the fact that he does that so he can film on the cheap for a couple weeks to create a microcosm of society at that point, as absurd as it may be, to create this microcosm with this, you know, um, you know, establishment like you know figure, and all these other people doing daily jobs that you would see them do around the city. You just can't film there because of the money. Right. So it's like you know, I mean, the 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 princess's boyfriend who dies is a jan- he's he's a, the janitor at the nude pool or whatever, right. um, or the the nude area, um, the nudist area. <clears throat> But like he's a janitor. It's like these people have these jobs. There's some that are farmers. It seems like there's some that are do this or that. Um, so I, I think it's pretty brilliant how he's able to still make those societal things on such a right. like, minuscule budget. Like he, Waters is a very, very sensitive, empathetic person yeah. to people with different lifestyle choices. Sure, and he shows that sensitivity almost in like the opposite way by making it like showing these grotesqueries, but then the people that are always doing the most grotesque things are the people who represent like standard society. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the police officer who's supposed to be, you know, whatever, like representing like law and order Mm -hmm. is the guy that, you know, makes them take off their panties and sure. (laughs) <laughs> These are from Bloomingdale's. I can right. uh, get it all over my man parts. Yeah. Oh. So weird. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uncomfortable. Know. It's an uncomfortable scene. Yeah. I water uh, waters very seldomly goes a little too far for my taste, but never so far that like I can't watch his films. Right. And there's other movies I where I feel like the director. I'm trying to think of a good like analogy to this. Where a director like pushes things too far, where I just have to stop watching it because I don't enjoy it anymore. Um, Jodorowsky kind of like toes that line on occasion to me, even though I really like him as a director. But Waters is always he's always telling you a story, and he's always showing you these characters <clears throat> in ridiculous ways that you know they might be like miscreants and criminals, but he's still like allows them to be sympathetic in some ways. I don't know. No, I agree. I mean, look, I... I'm assuming you probably agree with this. I like... As, as absurd as it is, I like the story of this. Yeah. Overall. Like, you know, I like it for those subtextual reasons, probably more than anything. Um, I think the dialogue's funny. Mm. Like, I think the dialogue's really funny. Um, Fantastic dialogue. Um, and... I like I like that subversive nature of the story, you know, all that stuff. My problem with Waters is what you're kind of hinting at there about going too far is that there's just a lot of things that make you extremely uncomfortable, usually in a visual sense, 
and I've been thinking about this a lot because I don't, I've never known how to verbalize how I feel about a lot of those older 70s John Waters movies, um, which are different from modern John Waters movies, like, you right. know, the ones that he's made. Like, they still have risque things, but it's, um, and, and but they're better quality film and stuff like that, like, in terms of direction and, you know, budget and all those kind of things. I, it's just the look of it is so filthy. Right. Purposefully, I think. Some of it is, yeah, I think. You know, and some of it's just budget. Probably. I mean, like, you look at something like Pink Flamingos, he's filming in, like, abandoned... Sure. Like, trailers sure. and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, he's... It, it's yeah. not necessarily... He, I mean, you bring it up yourself. It's more circumstance, I think. Yeah. And him kind of accentu- accentuating the filthiness for effect. You know, he's going to show you, like, a dick on screen. And not, right. like, be coy about showing you no. a yeah, dick right. or, like, a vagina sure. or yeah. a sex act that's something that, yeah. <clears throat> in 1977, you wouldn't necessarily ever see, you right. know, in a in a, a movie. Yeah. Or, like, probably even, like, talk about that much outside of, like, the privacy of your home. And he's just, he just does it. And, like, to me, it's, it's honestly, like, less exploitive than, I don't know, like, any quickie like sex comedy or horror movie like Porky's is far more exploitive as a movie than Desperate Living even though Desperate Living is showing like you know like almost like shows penetration and stuff like sure so but that's part of him being in your face and over the top and but also I think and it's like I don't want to like give too much conjecture here because obviously this isn't my lifestyle but I think like as a gay man Growing up in a time where being gay wasn't necessarily, like, an acceptable thing to be openly gay. You know, he probably felt like he had to be a little more aggressive about how he tackled things. Maybe just to get people to think a little bit about, like, the people that lived around him. You know, like, maybe it's... Maybe it's not so weird for this guy to be a cross-dresser or for these women to be lesbians or... Oh, I think that's definitely the strategy. Absolutely, I think that's the strategy. Is, like, you know... Oh, I'm supposed to hide, you know? No, I, in fact, I'm going to do the exact opposite, which is put it exactly in your face and make you, you know, extremely uncomfortable. I mean, I just don't think the discomfort for me comes from the story. It doesn't come from the lifestyles. It doesn't come from any of that. The discomfort comes from me and, like, the uncleanliness of all of it. Yeah. Like, you know, the characters don't look clean. Like... Right, everybody does have like a certain grime to yeah. them all the time. You know, the the settings don't look clean, and I think right. like that's something that like just puts me in an unease when I'm watching these movies. I like that, and I don't think I'm a, probably alone in that like whatsoever. Probably not. Like, um, but it's like that's what it is. It's like you know. Uh, so the the funny thing about that is, think about like his later movies. Like, think about I don't know what's I can't remember what stage of Freud that is, but it's probably my thing. Probably, <laughs> right, probably, anything, yeah. Think about stuff like like Crybaby and Hairspray and Serial Mom and even like Cecil Be Demented or um, whatever that other one more recently was. Like there's a certain point where he's still kind of telling the same story but doing it with like this huge palette of like color and mm-hmm. everything is... It almost like goes the opposite direction where everything seems like fabricated and clean and mm-hmm. <clears throat> like, you know, like the Crybaby stuff when they're in jail or... Right when they're in Enchanted Forest or whatever. Um, like, all that stuff. It's just... I think, like, he he 
he did these things because he felt like this is the way that he could like reach people and then once it almost became kind of passe like almost accepted like what was completely taboo at the time that he was filming it like he just sort of like changed and started doing these traditional things. I mean, there's some right. They're selling hippie wigs at retail stores. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Cry Baby yeah. has some really beautiful like film, like filming in it, like the set design, the framing and stuff. And it's not like Waters is like a different director. It's just that he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to make you uncomfortable anymore. In that way, because he can make you uncomfortable. Sure. You know, I mean, it's still the same idea. It's, you know, the button-down, preppy mm-hmm. kids are the villains sure. and, sure. you know, the freaks with their tattoos and their hot rods are the the heroes. Yeah. So. I'll tell you, though, I would have, if this movie would have just been 90 minutes of um, Peggy Gravel in the house dealing with her daily life, I probably would have enjoyed it just as much because, yeah, like, I thought I think the first few fifteen minutes of this movie is hysterical. Where, like, where she thinks that the kids are trying to kill her. Yes, yeah, because they. I hate your fucking mom. Right. I hate your fucking dad. Right. I fucking hate yeah. you. I mean, oh, it's, it, it, it's such a it's such a good condemnation of actually. I I, I don't know, like, because I mean, what what was it? This is seventy seven. It's like I'm assuming that had to like kind of again. It's over the top. But it's like that seems like something you would see that's more prevalent more today than it was in such like right. it's almost like it's become a reality. But again, like, like this character. is this is something where it's not you know people suffered from these problems and nobody talked about it. Like this right. is waters yeah. just like showing. Yeah. One of the right. other things that works really well too is I mean he's got this cast of people that he just worked with constantly. Yeah. You know, and Gene Hill, Mink Stoll, Liz Renee, mm-hmm. um, Edith Massey, like all those people are regulars in his films. And I think that like, cause the dialogue is so weird at times, like the way that they, and the way that, the way they deliver it is so natural because right. I think they just know him so well. Sure. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny though, that you pick like the one movie that you pick is the one that divine's not in. Like it's, it's, it's really funny. Like, right. Because I feel like, cause I think she was supposed to play the, um, <clears throat> Oh, well, Mole. Mole. She was supposed to play Mole. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, but she was, like, under obligation, couldn't do this movie or something. But um, It's interesting. Like, I, I feel... I feel like if people have seen John Waters' movies outside of the ones from, like, the late 80s on, mm-hmm. I feel like what they've seen is they've seen Pink Flamingos. Sure. You know what I mean? And I thought about maybe Female Trouble because I, yeah. I like Female Trouble a lot. And mm-hmm. there's some really good stuff with Divine and Female Trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I love the setting of Morville so much, and I love the ramshackle, like, you, like, the dirt, like, is upsetting to you, like, I, I love the look of it, like, I, it really feels like something, like, it looks like they built it, you know, themselves, Mm -hmm. like, it looks exactly like what it is, sure, but it's so effective, you know, in that, I don't know, just in its, it's, it's, it's griminess, like, it just, it works, and I don't know, I, It's it's probably my favorite Waters movies, yeah. honestly. Like I love I love Desperate Living yeah. a lot. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. I don't know who I would recommend it to. Like right. you better be able to take a lot, man. Right? Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> if you're, I don't know offended. if I stress it enough because I'm used to John Waters, like seeing a lot of John Waters movies. So I've seen them, so I know what to expect. So I don't know if I'm stressing this enough. It's like. I'm saying it makes me really uncomfortable, but it's like I can take a lot in film, like. 
I like things don't like turn me off visually by looking at them. So it's like there's stuff in his movies that is for the average person completely and utterly grotesque. Right. Um, so be warned, like before, you know, like if, if, if you don't know John Waters, you know, and you're going to sit down and watch something and you listen to this and you're going to watch it, just be warned. Um, but I, I will say but, this, but, but if, the story and stuff I, I think are solid. I, I, I mean, I like that stuff. If you ever watch this movie and you enjoy it, I would say you should watch everything else he did in the seventies. So female yeah. trouble, right. um, multiple maniacs, uh, pink flamingos. Um, you know, watch polyester and you really should read, um, shock value. Yeah. Shock value, his autobiography, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most readable, entertaining autobiographies I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and we'll actually, there's another autobiography we'll talk about later because another actor like much later, Mm -hmm. um, has one too, but like just so entertaining and it provides so much insight just in. The mind of a guy who is, in my opinion, like one of the greatest, like subversive filmmakers of all time. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, um, even if I'm not always the biggest fan of his movies, he's 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 a great director. Um, just a great creator, a, right? Just a great. brilliant, brilliant mind about and hilarious. If you are, really, like, you know, go 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 look for John Waters if you've never seen him before. Like he's been on like Bill Maher yeah. and like you know a number of other like interviews and stuff and. You know, he's extremely witty, extremely funny, like extremely kind man. Like, um, right in 1995, he actually came to University of Delaware, which is right up the road from mm-hmm. us, and just did like a. It was right after Shock Value. Shock Value maybe had gotten re-released or something. Re-released, yeah, because it was put out with like additional like chapters. It was put out in the 70s or 80s. Um, and we got to see him, my friends and I went to see him talk, and it's just yeah. completely engaging and mm-hmm. yeah. witty. And and he introduced, when we went to go see Dirty Shame, he introduced it, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we did see the premiere of that at the Charles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we went down and saw it. Yeah, it was the premiere. Dirty Shame, that's right. Dirty Shame, yeah. yeah we saw it premiere night. Yeah. Pecker, too, that was the other one. We never saw Pecker, but... No. I'm trying to, like, I always forget about some of his later Yeah, movies. Pecker was one, uh-huh, yeah. And I, I should say, like Frank said, to go watch those other 70s, early 80s movies. Um, if you don't like this movie, don't necessarily not watch his later movies. Right. Because yeah. they are different. Like, these early 70s, early 80s movies are different from things like Serial Mom and Pepper and Cecil Beatman and Hairspray. Yeah, right. Yeah. Baby. yeah. Um, like again, like there's some risque stuff in them sometimes, like in terms of you know, but, but it becomes more camp. Like right. this is more right. s- like in your face, yeah. subversive. Sure. Again, like counterculture filmmaking. Right. Whereas yeah. Crybaby is a campy, fun movie. Sure. sure. About the same ideas, yeah. basically. Okay. Ready to move on? Yep. All right. So number three on the list is the 1983 film by Slava Zuckerman uh, called Liquid Sky. It stars Anne Carlyle and Paula Shepard. Has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 70% from audiences. Um, I have a lot of questions about this. So 95% ahead. from critics. That's, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. So um, you want to go ahead and just explain a little bit about what the movie's about? Right. Um, so part of the movie is about the underground fashion world of like nightclubs and drug addicts where 
these models are like paid in cocaine, you know, to look disaffected and there's weird music being made. And part of the movie is a science fiction film about aliens who are really small and impossible to see that land in Manhattan and are trying to harvest the chemical that's created during orgasms, like, because that's what they live on. Um, I don't know. That's pretty much what it's about. I think that's what it's about. I think that's, that's probably succinct and, um, accurate. Um, so, well, let me get this out of the way first. What exactly is it that you like about the movie? I think it's, it's incredibly visually arresting at times. Like, very small sets. Like, there really isn't much in the way of sets. I mean, it's like, what, like, the apartment, the apartment's balcony, the club, and, like, a restaurant, maybe? And, like, a stairwell? I don't know. I mean, like, very... It's it's filmed in, like, very small spaces. But there's so many... Just, like, weird, interesting things that happen in those spaces. Like, um... <clears throat> the decor and the lighting. I think it's one of the weirdest... Most compelling performances ever in... Uh, what's her name? Anna Carlyle. The one that plays... Anna Carlyle that plays the dual role of... Yeah. Um, Jimmy and Margaret. Margaret, yeah. Um, just robotic at times and passionless most of the time. And even when it's like, well, that's like the Margaret character who's right. this like not really vapid because she's definitely insightful mm-hmm. about things, but like cool beyond caring about anything emotionally dull yeah yeah emotionally dull but like she's not a yes yeah <clears throat> dull character like right. at all she just nothing affects her emotionally like, numb when she's being like the only time she really like reacts is when she's almost being like raped and she sort of like fights back against sure. it um but someone that can't take pleasure in other people because she has like no pleasure in herself uh-huh. um just weird like, every character is slimy and self-serving and only out for their own gratification, like, to the harm of, like, anyone else that comes around them, except for Margaret, really, who wants nothing but basically just to be left alone. Um, I think I think it's a really damning look at like hipster culture sort of the idea of people who feel like they're so on the cutting edge of whatever's cool that they're above like reproach and i think that in a lot of ways like most people that get their quote-unquote just desserts sort of fall into that category um i think it's a pretty damning look at like drugs and the effect of drugs have on like the family family dynamic and just people in general and the lengths that people will go through to score drugs Mm -hmm. Um, again, I think it's like visually, like it's a stunning movie at times. Like there's some really crazy visual effects that are used to really great effect, like in the movie, like when 
towards the end, you know, when the aliens are vaporizing these people and they're like kind of like crumbling into little like aluminum foil balls sort of before they disappear. Right. Like I, I love that effect. Um, I really like the sort of, as much as I love David Bowie, like I kind of like the, the digs at Bowie and the way that like the makeup is applied to people and the way that people are dressed and the idea that, you know, these androgynous like creatures are really no better than anybody else, even though they like pretend to be, I don't know. There's, it's, it's. I don't know anything about Slava, whatever his name is. Zuckerman. Um, at all. And I've never read any criticism of this movie. Like, I know nothing about what anyone else thinks of this mm-hmm. movie. <clears throat> I saw this movie because it was recommended to me in, like, the 90s as this... It was out of print at the time on VHS. Mm-hmm. And the video store that I went to had a copy of it. And it was always out. So, like, one time I had the chance to see it and just, like, blown away by it. Um, a really crappy transfer, VHS transfer. Um, and then watching again later in life, like on, um, DVD, like this, like crisp, like clear transfer, it's just blown away by like the colors of it and the way that like it barely, it like almost, almost has no plot, even though there is a plot, it's just like a series of interconnected things Mm -hmm. that are happening, which I'm sure that you, you were a big fan of. Um, (laughs) But I like it. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I really, I, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of selling it, but I, I find it to be a really interesting and daring and continuously engaging movie, even though, you know, my plot description is what, like 30 seconds, maybe like, I don't even even know what to say about it plot wise. So, Okay. Oh, there's there's a scientist who knows about the aliens. <laughs> there is who's constantly yeah. trying. This woman's constantly trying to seduce him, but yeah. all he wants to do is yeah. like save people from the aliens because he's seen them in his special telescope. Yeah, yeah. and that's weird. Like, yeah, that is. just kind of like it's there. Yeah. Okay, so so I texted you about twelve minutes into this movie. What are you making me watch? What are you, Frank? What are you making me watch? Right. Um. I was proud of that text. Right. <laughs> As I got further into it, if you let it just kind of be there in front of you, you do become more engrossed in the world. It because you become more immersed into it, I think, and the oddness of all of it sort of sort of dissipates. And like, I thought it became much more engaging. Like. Not to say there weren't things that I was like, what what the hell is this? Right. But it's like, but there was at least a mystery there that also kept me engaged. Like, well, how the hell does this connect? The problem is, to me, that some of them don't connect to me. Like, in terms of maybe the plot, but thematically, like, I don't get it. So I, I hear what you're saying about all those things about, like, the condemnation of certain types of people, like, you know, drug addicts you know and like you know these kind of like you know the vapidness of the um you know modeling culture like you know and that like you know nightclub culture and all those kind of things that go along there it's like there's there's certainly these segments but is there a point would be my question is like does it wrap up like is is there like a 
do you see anything that like what's the value what's this movie saying like what's the value because i mean honestly that's what i when i look at movies a lot of times it's like there are some movies that are just movies and that's okay fine like and they can be good they can be really good but it's like i'm usually looking for at least a some sort of thematic statement or a lesson or something that comes from a film and it's like i was i've thought about this movie since i've seen it and i agree with you on a lot of the things i think the setting is really well done i think the colors are good um i have some cinematography issues and stuff with it at times but it's like overall like you know it's 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 a well done well executed movie i think i think for the time period and probably on a lower budget and i think ann carlisle was great in this movie like i just don't know what the hell to take away from it so i think it's a condemnation of the vapid self-obsessed drug culture that existed at the time in things like like it's very i feel like it's very anti-warholian in its its way of like Mm -hmm. these people who existed just to exist like in this in the sense that you know something like beyond the valley of the dolls almost embraces that idea of like someone who's just a weirdo for weirdness sake you know that like life is art and like I'm my own art installation type thing. Like, this is more of a condemnation of that. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a condemnation of hardcore and casual drug use and addiction. Um, It's a weird condemnation, I think, of, like, sex for no reason other than, like, personal gratification. Um, I think it's a pretty harsh look at like male dominance and men like either using force or coercion to like push themselves on women and women doing the same thing. I mean like Adrian later in the movie, you know, who's not a very good character at any point during the movie, but basically forces uh, Margaret to have sex with her just to kind of prove that almost like a like Russian roulette type thing. Like, well, I'm not going to die. If I have sex with you, um, just, I guess anybody like forcing themselves for their own gratification on an unwilling participant, because Margaret is never a like necessarily willing participant. Even when she realizes she can kill people by having sex with them, she's only doing it to, um, I don't know, like basically pay them back for being terrible. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's really just a very weird look at that culture sort of what's captured in like like bright lights big city or mm-hmm. um american psycho to an extent or less than zero right like to right. less like three sure. yeah. Ellis, whatever yeah, right. no and i bright lights big city is very yeah. Ellis, but you know i mean that whole like idea of like um what's the what's the phrase from the 80s conspicuous consumption or whatever Uh and you know this i don't know just like neon pastel world of people like living just for their own hedonistic pleasure like it kind of condemns all that it's honestly the least sympathetic yeah of all five of these movies towards its subject but i also think it's probably even though it's all an exaggeration i think it's probably captures 
you know, like a lot of those actual like characteristics of those people really well. Yeah. So our our good friend Dave Kerr um, says that the plot line, um, he's just describing the plot line there. He says captures the neo puritanism of the new wave movement, but ultimately that Zuckerman does little more than just pass it on. Um, that he thinks it does a pretty good job of capturing that, but he's not really doing anything with it. And I hate to do this, given what you just said. I think I agree with Dave Kerr. And that's like... Uh, right, okay. So in that, he... Zuckerman is not providing you with any insight as to why or... He, he is not, it, it, it almost is more of like a pseudo documentary in that sense. Like mm-hmm. he's not commenting. He's not, he's, he isn't giving you a moral to the story. There is mm-hmm. no moral except mm-hmm. that if you seek self-pleasure to the exclusion of anyone else that you're going to die basically mm-hmm. is the only thing that right. comes out of it. Um, but I don't know that like. I don't know that I needed to have anything other than that. Like, yeah. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty I, brilliant just existing yeah. in its own weird universe of what it is. Well, to me, it's like it wasn't the plot line that captured me necessarily. Like you know, it, the acting, the world itself. I don't know the plot if I cared about. I don't even know if I fully understand the plot. Like the like you said, the scientist. Like it doesn't make any. I don't right. know what that any of that's about. Um, so Only, like, if that, if that's the case, then I, I, I was looking for something to kind of, to hit at the end and it, and it doesn't. Um, so like the scientist, for instance, this is a guy whose whole mission is life in life. He's the only selfless character in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He's the only character that only wants to help other people mm-hmm. to the exclusion of like this attractive woman right. throwing that herself on him okay. repeatedly. Uh-huh. And he refuses because all he cares about is trying to save these two women that he doesn't know from this alien menace that he's the only one that believes in. Right. Everyone else in that movie is trying in some way. Like, even the old art teacher guy who comes off as being, like, the friendly granddad, he just wants to fuck her. her. Right. And it's like everyone else is just trying to... It's weird that neo-puritanism of the new wave, like, I don't know... I don't know. Like, to me, the new wave is, like, a really, like... I mean, it's got, like, that whole, like, cold and clean aesthetic to it. Like, think about, like, Gary Newman or Talking Heads or whatever. But, I mean, there's a lot of, like, subversion in that as well. So, I don't know. That's a weird complaint. But, I mean, he's right. Like, he's not... Zuckerman isn't saying, like, here's the moral of our story. But you've got, like... Like, Adrian is basically Valerie Solanas. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And... Jimmy is basically David Bowie. Sure. Jimmy and Margaret. I mean, yeah. they're basically like that's Bowie as a character. Like the drug use, the androgyny. You know, he's got somebody like, like the bored urban housewife, not even housewife, the bored urban single woman who just wants to like fuck this German guy, right. or you know, the woman living with her husband who's like more successful than him, so he takes drugs because he feels like inadequate. And she doesn't necessarily care about him. She cares about how he's ruining her party. You know what I mean? Like, all these people are these self-serving 
like real. I honestly, I feel like close to real life portrayals of people you could actually know. Oh, I I, I agree with that. And I think that it's I think it's a really damning look at the idea that like you can't just live for your own pleasure. Sure. I mean, my my only criticism of that, and I I, I like this overall. I thought it was good. Um, I'll even say. I just wonder if this movie would have stopped after the first, like, alien death after, like, the orgasm. Like, I wonder if, like, the movie could have just ended there and I got all of it. You probably did. Right. I mean, it's... Like, and, and see, and, and that's why I was confused by it, is because it's, it felt like, oh, there's another 45 minutes of this movie. Like, I should, there's something more. And it's like... Yeah, so it, I was gonna, that's really it. Yeah. It's okay. just over and over again beating over the head. So, I, okay. So and it looks I beautiful when it does it, it but... Okay. Okay. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Sure. Um, Again, I'll I, be honest. I, even Kerr gives it like a mixed review. Like he, um, he thinks it's really well done, and you know, um, he he praises Carlisle. Pretty much everybody praises Carlisle that I read. Even the the slightly negative reviews, which there's not that many of them, which is odd. Right. Um, even like Janet Maslin gives it like you know overall like a pretty good review. She criticizes the plot as not being the greatest asset, which right. I agree with. You know, but I mean. Um, um, and she, for some reason, calls Jimmy Larry. But <clears throat> besides, like um, that, like she she praises the performances. She praises the resourcefulness, like you know, of Zuckerman and like stuff like that, and like you know, um, and and the, and the style of the movie. So it's like um, the critics, even at the time, like were pretty high on this movie, which yeah. is odd because I have never heard of it until you put it on this list, not once. Again, um, it's something that was just completely unavailable for the better part of like a decade and a half i would say right. i mean seriously like i i before it got re-released on dvd in i think the early 2000s maybe like shock factory or something put it out on dvd um completely unavailable on vhs i have seen literally one copy of this movie on vhs prior to like the 2000s and that was this rough like worn down copy in the one video store and and I'm sure that across the country there's many copies like that, but I think it was just something that people kind of forgot about. And, it, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast so much is I think there's a lot of movies, even though we don't necessarily talk about a lot of, like, smaller, obscure movies, mm-hmm. which I think at some point we'll get into stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's nice to talk about something that's not as well-known. And- right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is available now, though, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, it's free. Um on Amazon right now. Um, I, mean, pretty, I think that's pretty much the only place that's available right now. So It's been on there for a while, so yeah. if you want to watch it, you might yeah, want to watch it soon because yeah. that stuff tends to go. Sure. Um, although Amazon's certainly better than other places about that kind of stuff. Like, um, they don't change quite as frequently, it seems. Uh, just got a really terrible uh, video player interface. Um... Okay, any final thoughts about this movie? No. I mean, again, it's, it's one of those movies where I can't tell you, like, I absolutely recommend that you go and see this movie, mm-hmm. but I think if you have an open mind and you're willing to just, like, enjoy an interesting, odd, visually arresting at times movie, I think that it's worth your time to seek it out. Okay. So you ready to move on to number two? Yeah, number two. All right. So the second film on your list is the 1968 Movie directed by Alex Cox, Sid and Nancy, starring Gary Oldman, Chloe Webb, and Andrew Schofield. I think you mean 1986. What did I say? 68. Oh, yes, 1986. 
Alex Cox is a visionary. <laughs> um, it has a 87% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 76 from audiences. Uh, you want to go ahead, I guess, and probably just tell a little bit about the history of like this movie and what the movie's about. Um, so it follows uh, Sid Vicious, um, bass player for the Sex Pistols. Um, opens with Vicious being arrested for the death of his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. Um, and then flashes back to Chronicle, basically like the year plus um, from, you know, Sid meeting Nancy in London uh, prior to the Sex Pistols embarking on their U.S. tour. Um, and then the dissolution of the Sex Pistols, Sid trying to start a solo career. Both of them spiraling into <clears throat> catastrophic like heroin addiction. And then the night of her death that kind of like is the prelude to the opening of the movie and sort of like a coda to that leading to him like basically like his death which is never shown in the movie it's just sort of like done in the I guess it's like end titles or whatever like they talk about it <clears throat> um pretty tragic story of you know two people that were like almost like well not even almost like destructively in love with each other and fed each other's addictions and basically led to like each other's demise um centering around what i would say is probably the most like known punk band from the 70s in the sex pistols um at least when i was a kid like that was the band that when you thought about punk in the 70s you thought about the sex pistols um Amazing performances, especially by Gary Oldman as Sid. Um, one of my favorite, like, I, I love Oldman as an actor and definitely, like, one of his best performances. Uh, but also, uh, Chloe Webb uh, playing Nancy. Um, really amazing performance by her as well. Um, it's a very, it's a very uncomfortable movie, I think, just because it's so detailed in the drug use. And, like, the effects of drug use on people. Um, again, very sad in the sense that, like, here's a guy that had the entire world open for him and, like, threw it away, basically, for drugs and the idea that he was in love with this woman. And his own self-inflated ego thinking that he was somehow better than just sort of being, like, this guy that was in a band that happened to be popular at the time. Um... I, I think it's, and I I think Alex Cox does an amazing job in the direction. Um, it's a very, I don't think frantic is the right word, but it, it's a very, like, like it, it, it pushes forward, like, the entire time. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's always engaging. Like, you're always sort of, I don't know, like, fascinated by what you're seeing on the screen. Yeah. Just um, really great. Like the so the counterculture thing here is obviously not only the punk scene of like late seventies, you know, London and then like into the United States, but also the sort of unspoken thing at the time where a lot of these people were very like bad drug addicts and a lot of them died as a result of their addiction to heroin specifically in this case, but you know, other drugs. Um I don't know, just really well done. Like it's not a lot plot-wise, really. I mean, it really is just kind of a straightforward romance in that sense, but a romance of, like, very damaged people. Um, 
the criticism of this movie is um, odd to me. Um, so one of the criticisms is of Chloe Webb in terms of her performance that I see, and that's even for people that like the movie sometimes, um, is that she's like too screeching, she's too shrill, she's too... Um, which to me seems like a reaction to the character, but I, I, I don't know. But they they, they criticize her performance. Um, in I, so <clears throat> part of part of the mystery, I guess, if you want to call it that, of this movie, or like the allure of it in terms of like a a cinematic work, is the idea that Sid is better than Nancy, really, like. Mm-hmm. When he first meets her, he has no interest in her because she's so naked in her obvious desire just to be a star fucker, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. she's in London specifically to have sex with, a, like, someone in a punk band, basically. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter that it's, you know, it's not specifically Sid Vicious that she's after. Right. She doesn't even know who Sid is at first. Right. She mistakenly, she mistakes the two of them, yeah. Um, because she she doesn't... She's not a groupie in the sense of someone who loves the music or is into the idea of the scene. She's just into the idea of like being someone like almost in like almost famous, mm-hmm. you know, just someone that wants to have sex with people in a band. And he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him, despite the fact that like you can see as the viewer that there's not really anything alluring or special about her. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I think that it's important that her performance makes you feel that way because it adds to the the sad mystery of, like, why did this guy, like, destroy his life? You know, and I think that's a question of love, you know, that exists in, like, real life. You know, like, you see people sometimes that you care about or that you have a lot of respect for and they're with someone who's, obvi- like, to you is obviously not a good person for them to be with. Like, you they're loud or they're loud or they're shrill or they're dumb. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's like that person loves this other person and you can never understand why. And I think that's an important part of the movie is it's like, you know, you don't really have a lot of Sid Vicious to go back. Like a lot of the, you know, a lot of things you know about the man's life and his death and all the events, it's all, you know, anecdotal in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There's not, you know, you've got Johnny Rotten, who's an old man now, that can reflect back and tell you things that happened, or Malcolm McLaren, or whatever. You know, other people that were involved in the scene at that time that knew those people. But it really is just, like, this tragic love story that kind of is perplexing as to why the love was there. And, like, maybe, you know, kind of the feeling that I always get from it is that you know, they were just, like, doomed, I guess, to be together. That they're, they saw, like, their own self-destruction and self-loathing in the other person, and that, like, attracted them to each other. And I, I think her performance is actually, like, really spot on in that sense, you know. Because um, she's not attractive in the movie. Like, you never think, like, oh, my God, like, right. Nancy's, like, I can see why someone would, <clears throat> you know, like throw away a music career, right? She's no Helen of Troy or anything, right? Like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is a this is slightly long, but I, I do think it's probably worth reading all the way through. Um, 
Paul Atanasio of the New York Times wrote contemporaneously, uh, while the attention to service reality is true to the characters and to, the punk rock, to punk rock in general, it underlines what's superficial about the movie itself. In approaching punk, Cox has made a punk movie, alive with anarchy and with the how-far-can-we-go humor of anarchy, but dead inside. Punk rejected the idea of a moral center, of social or artistic context, of psychological motivation, but art requires all of those things. In short, a sense that there's a living, breathing filmmaker behind the film. In a metaphysical sense, the movie never ventures outside the hotel rooms where Sid and Nancy seem to spend all their time. The result is that Sid and Nancy, the movie, winds up being a drag. The first half of the movie rides on its playfulness on the infantile pleasure we all share in breaking things. And Cox builds in a kind of complex comedy as Sid and Nancy outrage the squares but yearn for the satisfactions of a square life, marriage, home, family, Paris, in the springtime. All of this is lost once the couple go into their heroin-laced tailspin. As Nancy shrieks and Sid blunders through some solo gigs and Nancy shrieks some more, the movie becomes a look at the slow and rather dull suicide of two addicts and the comedy dries up. <clears throat> so here's, I have a couple questions like based off of that. Okay. Do you see this as a comedy? It's a black comedy, I guess, if you want to look at it like that. In the first half, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's... It's a no, drama with comedic elements. Yeah. Like, there's there's situations that make you laugh. Sure. And things that happen that, you know, are funny. But it's not a comedy. It's right. it, It's a drama, right. 100%. It's a really okay. So, when I was a kid, like I loved the Sex Pistols, but one of the things that I do whenever I like something a lot is I become like obsessed with learning about it. So, I was really into punk when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, um, especially like the nascent period of punk. So, like the Velvet Underground leading into like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that stuff. And the Sex Pistols were honestly the Backstreet Boys or the NSYNC of, like, that time period. Like, they were, you know, Malcolm McLaren had a very... Malcolm McLaren operated a shop, I think called Sex or something like that, in London that was, like, a hipster shop. Like, he sold clothes to, like, trendy people. And the band was his way of, like, pushing his aesthetic through the music onto the scene. And not to say that the Sex Pistols aren't a good band. You know, I think Anarchy in the UK is... Or never mind the bollocks is a is a really good album. Like I still like it a lot to this day, but it's not the same thing as as you know, like bands like the Ramones who were organically came together and played a bunch of shows in dingy places and gained fame just through their longevity. You know, the Sex Pistols had one album. They were immediately shocking and represented, you know, to the quote unquote squares the scary side of what punk music was. So it's not a movie about the the scene necessarily or like the rise of like this musical style. It's a movie about a contrived band made up of people who were like heavily damaged themselves and the result of that sudden stardom, you know? I mean, so I don't know. I like 
I don't feel that it doesn't have heart. Like, I think there's plenty of scenes. Like, when he's singing, um, what is it, My Way towards yeah, the end? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, there's a lot of emotion yeah. and, you know, pathos in that. And yeah. Nancy is just, she is like a shrill, nagging, self-loathing, paranoid drug addict. I mean, that's just what she is. Like, I don't, like, any, any criticism of that, I just feel like misses the point of what those characters are supposed to be. I agree with you there. Now, you just said something and it ties into something else I'm going to ask you about what Antonasio was saying. You just said that, um, like, somewhere, like, you think that that's closer to the end of the movie, like, my way. Um, it's really, like, close to the halfway point. When, when, when does the band break up? That's about halfway through. Right? It is, yeah, and that's yeah. about... So it, it, it's, yeah. like, soon after that, because yeah. he's trying... But, I mean, you're, in some ways, your first instinct was to think it was close to Right, the it feels like it's, like, like right. 20 minutes left in the movie sure. when that scene happens. So, do you think that there could be the potential of what he's saying in terms of the second half of the movie being, at times, a little dull as that descent takes place? Maybe. I mean, full disclosure, this is the only one of these five movies that I didn't rewatch mm-hmm. for this. Um, I watched scenes from it, like mm-hmm. scenes that I remembered either on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I didn't sit down and watch from start to finish. Um, and that's because it's not available anywhere? Yeah, so. I, I couldn't bring myself to dig out the DVD. It was too much work. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I played the fifth on how I ended up watching right. it. So yeah. I think I know what box it's in, but that's yeah. it's neither here nor there. Right. Um, maybe, but like, so the the scene in the Chelsea that eventually leads to Nancy's death is about fifteen minutes long, right? It is, and it's fantastic. Yeah, that's I my I would agree a little bit in the sense of like the halfway point up to that scene. Not that there's not good scenes in between. But that does get that does slow the movie down a little bit to me until but, you get to that sequence, right, and then they, that sequence is brilliant. They really are in some way trying, and he he says this in there, and I, I think it's true: is they're trying to find a sense of normalcy mm-hmm. in the most like fucked up, fractured, nonsensical way. Like without they they want the idea of normalcy without applying any like normal rational thought to how do you get to that point right like they want to be a married couple or whatever and they don't ever do anything to get themselves to that stage i don't know like no, I, no, I i think that's exactly right i mean like and i think that's part of the 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 black heart of this movie is that like you know he's even when they're not having sex anymore, because I don't think they can anymore because of the drugs. Right. He's also not attracted to her after a certain point. Sure. But it's like, but the, well, he's, they still kiss. They still well, he's, love. He's, he's in love with her. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Right, yeah. He just has no interest in, in her. Right. But it's it's like, there, there's, there's real intimacy there still. And I think that desire to somehow be like a normal, loving couple, I think that always exists, like, in addicts. I mean... I've never been to that extent at all. Like, yeah. you know, in terms of heroin. So I I don't have that perspective. But it's like, I think I can relate in the sense that you probably can too. It's like, in the midst of like a three or four day binge, like when you're with somebody, like you end up like having these little like 
intimations of like domesticity in some way. Right. Do you know like what I'm you, talking about? You try to cook a meal, or right? You're right. doing the laundry or something sure, like right, that. Yeah. You're gonna, gonna go clean the bathroom, right? Right. Probably because you puked all over. <laughs> right. But like, I I think that rings really true. Like, yeah. I mean, and it's really sad when you watch. It, it. is. I mean, again, it's a very very sad movie. Sure. Um, it's it, it it's it's definitely a tragedy. That's. Mm-hmm. Even beyond a drama. Yeah. It, no, like it's, I, that's exactly It's a mean. tragedy. And that's what I, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what I have written here. So that's in my stuff is, um, it's definitely a, a tragedy. Um, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I, I think I agree with him in the sense that it does slow down the second half a little bit. It becomes jagged, I think, at times. Because I, I get it. You can't do everything in the hotel rooms. So it has to go outside for some things, but it's almost like you could have cut some things out. If I'm being hypercritical of this movie, you could have cut some things out and did it all in the hotel rooms and let that be the relationship and, and show the you know the dysfunction, the downfall yeah. there. Like I said, not that there's not some good scenes like you know and stuff like that that, that happen in that, but it's um um that's that's truer to what happened than the outs the stuff outside the hotel room. Yeah, Alex Cox is an interesting guy. Like he, um, a couple of like movies I love from the eighties. Like yeah, he did Repo Man, which I think right. was really good. Um, he did another movie a year after this one called Straight to Hell, which is a punk western. I guess it's almost like sort of Yojimbo, maybe a little bit, okay. but like with like punk actors and stuff, like yeah. Joe Strummer and. The Pogues are in it. Um, just, I don't know. He's, I think, much more interested in the dynamic of the people than he is in, yeah. like, he'll sacrifice narrative a little bit just to, at the expense of showing his characters yeah. rather than, like, but I don't know. Like, I, it never feels like a long movie to me. It's been a few years since I've seen Sin yeah. Nancy, but it doesn't. And maybe that's just because I forget, like, the parts that It I didn't don't... feel long to me. It just felt at times, like, it's horrible to say, but it's, like, it's it's my time, I guess. It's, like, there's times where it's, like, okay, come on. <laughs> you know where it's heading, you right. know? I mean, so it's, like, there's times where it's, like, okay, like, let's move this along. Like It's, you know, it's tough when you're talking about, like, what's a biopic, in essence, too, because... Sure. Whenever you know the inevitable outcome to a movie, when you're not surprised by yeah. a plot twist, like you know how it ends. So, yeah. <clears throat> and he almost like like it's it's acknowledged that you know how it ends because it starts at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, like the first scene is really like the falling action after the climax. Mm-hmm. Is that that's what you're witnessing, and then it just like takes you back and makes you live up to that moment again. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene in in the Chelsea when she wants him to kill her and he doesn't want to kill her. And then maybe like, it's never like truly. Yeah. I don't know that you ever will really know if he purposefully killed her or not. Like if it was an accident. Right. They, I think they handled that very well considering like the different stories that exist about. Right. And again, that's because you can't go back to Sid Vicious and get him to tell you what happened. Well, Right. And he told what at the time he told two different stories, you know I mean? So, um, so I think they handled that really well of like not really doing it so where you can judge right. like whether it was an act because she runs and does he thrust his hand you know I mean it's like it's 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 hard to tell to me like in the movie 
And also, like, you know, at, at the time, like, leading up to that, he's telling her that he wants to get clean and he wants to go back mm-hmm. to London. He wants to start his life again. Right. Like, he doesn't want to live this life anymore because he's not going to have any success in a solo career, really. Right. Um, so, yeah, maybe that, like, maybe that's his out. And then, like, he immediately regrets it. I mean, who knows? But, yeah, right. <clears throat> again, Oldman's performance is yes. so amazing it in this is. movie. And just I think really, hard, yeah. yeah, just really, really, really. I don't know how many like I I and here's the thing is I think Webb's performance is impressive in the sense that I think that there is more of a um, bias against female addicts than there are male addicts. I think there's still something sexy in media at times about the male addict. Sure. Where I don't think the female addict has that same appeal whatsoever. Maybe not. Um, it depends, I think. I think it's how they sexualize males and females differently. And I think Amy culture. Winehouse was definitely sexualized as an addict, like, before her, she died. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely some heroin chic in the way that Amy Winehouse sure, would be photographed. Sure. I, and, yeah. I mean, obviously, her music is about, right. you know, addiction and yeah. whatever, like, personal demons. But it, the way that it's, the way that she was shot, I think that, but, you know, like, Kurt Cobain and whatever, um... What's his name? Uh, Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. Like, always... Like, they were, like, known addicts and always portrayed as being... Right. Like, that was something you should aspire to, is that, you know, that bad boy... Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a drug addict and a musician. Like, I'm a suffering artist or whatever. Yeah, so... They get you on a cover. Put a a cigarette in their mouth and it's a cover. You know, I mean... um, But, yeah, no, I think both of the performances are... Really impressive in this. Um, any final thoughts about it? No, I don't know how rewatchable Sid and Nancy is. I mean, I've, I've seen it like three or four times in my life. Um, again, a movie I saw when I was pretty young and then a few times like over the course of my adulthood. Um, but like, if you have any interest in the music from that time or I don't know if just in general, like it's it's worth at least one watch, I think. Oh, how do you feel about um, Cox in terms of like how dealing with the counterculture? Like, I don't think I I, I mean, I mean, maybe you maybe you answered this to some degree. I don't feel like it's like, romanticized at all, but I also don't yeah, think I don't that either. it's like a hundred percent condemned. No, I mean they're again. So I, I sort of said this in a roundabout way, but. I think he's so interested in telling the story of the character that the moralization and the narrative kind of falls to the wayside. Mm. So, I mean, it's an unflinching look at people that are, like, deeply addicted to drugs. Like, it doesn't pull any punches in that respect. Um, And maybe to its detriment, like, judging by that review. But, like, definitely, it's it's an open-eyed look at addiction, you know. I, I, I forgot that I put this on here. Sorry, I was just looking at um, Eber gave it four stars. Uh, Eber gave, I think, like, I don't think he reviewed Liquid Sky, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he did Desperate Living either. Um, Less surprising. But, um, but he gave this four stars. And um, Ebert's um, compassion shocks me sometimes. Um, he said that uh, Sid and Nancy makes... Uh, observations with such complexity, such vividness, and such tenderness that at the end of the film, a curious thing happens. You don't weep for vicious or spongin, 
but maybe you weep for all of us that we have been placed in a world where it is possible for people to make themselves so unhappy. Um, and it's like sometimes Ebert like really pulls things out of about movies that, yeah. um, well, yeah, but I That's thought that was, yeah, it is. Um, I'll be interested in how talking about it off there. I'm interested about Ebert and addiction because he has way because we dealt with this in uh, Train Spotting too. Right. He has way too many insights about addiction. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, so we can talk about it briefly here. Yeah. Like, and we mentioned this during the Train Spotting. Like, when you there's a really good documentary about Ebert that was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. Um, I mean, him and his colleagues were drunk. Yeah. Like pretty consistently every day, you know, working on this paper, like they would go out and drink like every night. Yeah. So even if Ebert maybe never considered himself an addict, like yeah. being around these old newspaper yeah. men who were drinking yeah. themselves to death, you know, I mean, I can see how you could have some compassion. Right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, moving on to number one. Number one movie is With Nail and I, 1987 film directed by Bruce Robinson, stars Richard E. Grant. Paul McGann and Richard Griffiths. 94% from critics, 94% from audience on Rotten Tomatoes. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it? Uh, so it follows titular with Nail and I, um, two unemployed actors living on the dole in what amounts to like a tenement house in London. Um, they live a filthy lifestyle. Uh, they're both heavy drinkers addicted to some not addicted to but users of some forms of like narcotics of some kind Um, amphetamines i think a lot of it is yeah Yeah. pills definitely um but also like like marijuana sure um they're they have this weird pseudo contentious relationship with a drug dealer um who's both threatening and like non-threatening at the same time danny yeah danny um they visit uh, with Nail's rich uncle, um, who Mar Marwood, who is the eye uh, in the movie, although he's never named in the yeah. entire film, um, infers that Uncle Monty is a homosexual that wants to have sex with him. He's very uncomfortable, but with Nail manages to wrangle an invitation to Uncle Monty's like English country home. <clears throat> they have the idea that they should get away uh, from the city for a while to like sort of regroup and um they end up going to the cottage um they run afoul of people along the way like there's some really uncomfortable scenes uh one particular in a pub where uh when marwood goes to urinate because he's covered himself in cologne right because something was spilled on him and he stunk Mm -hmm. He gets called a, a ponce yes, by this yeah. like rough like yeah. English like thug, and they get threatened. And Withnail has this acerbic wit that he's just like completely rude to everyone he meets. But he's also incredibly um, what's the word I'm looking for? Craven. Like he backs down yeah. from everything. So he's got this huge mouth, and then immediately retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, they end up in the country estate. They run afoul of a poacher. Um, Uncle Monty surprises them when they're both in bed together. So Uncle Monty assumes that they're homosexuals as well, which with Nail, you find out later, like does nothing to, you know, has sort of like 
perpetuated this idea that Marwood specifically is a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the point where there's some really uncomfortable scenes where Uncle Monty's basically trying to rape uh, Marwood. Um, yeah, so he's going to take it by burglary. Is that the whole yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, um, and then you find out that, like, in fact, that's how they got the country house is because with nail implied with nail and definitely implied like. And maybe even more than implied that... That Monty could have his way with Marwood right. if he came up. Yes. Yeah. Um, on their way back from the country estate, uh, with Nail is arrested for drunk driving um, after trying to use, what is it, like baby pee to get out of, I don't know, this ridiculous scene. Right. Get back in the fucking car! Yeah. Um, but, he's, but yeah, he's, he gets arrested for for uh, reckless driving reckless and speeding, driving. you know, because yeah. he's trying to, he's making time. <laughs> yeah. Um, when they finally return to London after their pseudo-disastrous trip in the countryside, um, they find out that Danny and, uh, what is his name? Uncertain Ed or whatever. Uh, this big Jamaican... Um, like almost, I don't know. Like medicine man seems yeah. like a really racist way to call it, but he's yeah. like a like a, a mystic of some kind. Mm-hmm. Have taken up residence in their flat and not paid the rent, which they're now being evicted from. Um, and Marwood also finds out that he's achieved a lead role, and he's been asked to come and like take this part. Um, and at that point, you know, it's kind of them like sort of breaking up in a way, and Marwood leaving, like cleaning himself up, and he becomes he goes from being this frazzled hippie looking guy to being like a clean cut you know gentleman um and that's it pretty much i mean really it's just the counterculture aspect to me is you know the drugs which i think is a common theme throughout all of these films but also you know these people that are living off of you know the government sort of like they have no they don't earn any income they don't have jobs they live you know on the dole from like week to week with their pay um live a much like they take no care of themselves whatsoever in terms of their hygiene or their personal living um at the expense you know of always going after alcohol you know like they'll spend you know all their money in the pub to get shots of gin and pints without ever buying like toiletries or Sure. Shoes, for right, instance, right, like yeah. you know, they're walking around with like what are bags over their feet? Yeah, because they can't buy boots. Um, brilliant. Like Bruce Robinson does an amazing job of just filming the two of them, yeah. and they are. I don't know that there's any scene that doesn't involve at least one of them, you know, on the screen at any time. I mean, it really is just. And you and I have disagreed about this. Like, I kind of think it's a it's a pseudo love story almost between the two of them. And I think that I think Marwood loves Withnail and, and knows it. And I think Withnail loves Marwood and isn't aware that he loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just their you know their life together that eventually ends when one of them is finally given the chance to actually do something um, and not be self-destructive for once and makes that choice. Although Marwood, who, you know, the I, um, is the narrator of the film throughout, like sort of done in the style of him doing a voiceover out of his journals, kind of. Um, 
so obviously more sensitive and more self-aware, I think, than with Nail, who has these sort of delusions of grandeur and is willing to always lie about his achievements to get through a situation just to make himself seem grander than what he is. Yeah. Um, and just so people know the I, the Smarwood character, and why he's the narrator. It, it is, this is loosely based on recollections, um, loosely based on recollections of Bruce Robinson, yeah. the director himself, about his time. Um, and I can't remember the guy's actual name of living with someone and this was their lifestyle. Um, you know, like that, the, that they live through and that's why he's the narrator. Um, yeah. Um, amazing performance by Richard E. Grant. One of my favorite acting performances of the last 40 years, maybe. I mean, definitely this ridiculous balance of like wit and charm and absolute unearned self-righteousness and almost like an effete I don't know like bourgeois attitude while he's rubbing himself with hemorrhoid cream to try and keep warm you know it's 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 just and McGann is really great in it um the actor who plays Uncle Montio, I can't remember, is is pretty great. Richard Griffiths, yeah, yeah, and incredibly famously as um, Harry Potter's uncle right. in the um, yeah. the Dursleys, yeah. Um, very menacing while still being like very cordial and mm-hmm. like grandfatherly almost. Sure. Um, but incredibly, like those scenes in the the cottage when you think that Monty might rape Marwood right. is really uncomfortable. It is, yeah. Um. You know, it's so the the film it's eighty six, but was or eighty eight? Eighty seven. Eighty seven. Sorry. <laughs> I hit the two years right. around it. Um set in nineteen sixty nine, like the end of nineteen sixty nine, right. and a lot of the dialogue is about the you know, the decade of love coming to an end and how you can't be a hippie anymore, basically. You have to move on to something else and that's kind of the Danny character is this guy that you can tell has been like this almost like hippie, like drug Svengali for all this time and is kind of like seeing his world like coming to an end as well. Like he can't be that. He's even like talks about venturing out and other things like his, the thing that um gets with Nell like basically arrested when he tries to use the baby pee um, is this invention by this Danny guy to get you out of like traffic stops. Um, the, the dialogue is incredibly crisp. Yeah. Um, it's got so many funny, like quotable lines in it. Um, with Nell particularly, just like constant. I don't know. Just an amazing movie. It's yeah. even if you take out the fact that, like, again, like I consider it to be like a really subtle but great love story, and not like like a carnal love story. But I think there's like a platonic love between these two men that eventually like fades because the one has to make the choice to take care of himself. Mm. Um, really great buddy movie. You know, it's a great road trip movie. Um, it's a really good look. I think at some things that were problems in England that maybe we don't think about that much because we don't, you know, it doesn't really directly affect our lives. But the idea of like the sensitive crimes where like being a homosexual was Mm. a listed like criminal activity. Um, and the extent that these people had to go to to hide their homosexuality. Right. Um, the idea of, like, people living off the dole and 
sort of what's touched on in train spotting where these guys, right. you know, are all of them in train spotting. They don't work for a living except right. for Tommy who works at the video store. But, mm-hmm. you know, these people that like were paid by the government basically to take drugs and be mm-hmm. <clears throat> vagrants and criminals for the most part. And it's got a very like washed out hazy look to it like everything feels like it's almost like a weird dreamlike quality especially when they're in the countryside like the way that that stuff is filmed and i don't know i can't really say enough great stuff but it's one of my favorite movies i would yeah. say ever i think the no i agree and after watching it again this time i've seen it i think four times now um it's definitely up there it's 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 somewhere i don't know i don't want to put a number on it but it's probably somewhere in the top 20 like 30 somewhere in there um one of the one of the criticisms he gets is um robinson's writing is not criticized you know the acting is not criticized um it's usually the story um which i'll explain in the direction so I'll start with the story. Okay. I think it's easy to kind of get past, probably. Is, um, and, and this is mainly me searching through user reviews and message boards because critically, not many people have anything bad to say about this movie. Um, so, commonly, if it's a negative review, it's that with nails discussing human being, Marwood's too passive, that it's just degeneration that has no real value, like in terms of a story whatsoever. Um, and I'll answer that one myself is I think it's just missing the point. Right. Yes. He's a disgusting human being. Yes. Marwood's a very passive hanger on that just kind of goes along to get along. And, um, and if you don't see any value in the, in the story, like of those two kind of that dissolution of that friendship, then I, I don't know what to tell you at that point. Um, so I'm going to discount that one. Possibly, possibly. Um, what do you... What do you think about the direction of the movie? Like, kind of directed, directing elements like, you know, cinematography, like, you know, framing, like, all those kind of things. Like, so, again, there's no scene in this movie that doesn't have one of the two main characters in it. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the scenes are both the main characters. And... The direction almost has to take a back seat to that because that's what it is. I mean, really, it's it's a stage play, you know, but it's a mm-hmm. stage play on a grand scale because it has to take place right. in a bunch of different areas. But you could have all of those interactions on a single theater stage and have it be just as meaningful. So mm-hmm. there, he um, he does another movie. I think this is after that Robinson maybe before called how to get ahead in advertising. Yeah. That's a much more traditional film mm-hmm. and it's, it's much, it's after this one. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a straight comedy, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's about like, it's got a plot. It's about something. Right. And you can see that he's a talented director. And I think that what makes this move, I, I think what he does such a good job in is he, He almost makes it so you don't even think about the fact that it's being directed. You know what yeah. I mean? That you're just like seeing things. I agree. And he sets up every shot that with Nail and Marwood are your focus. And that's what's important. And there's some great, you know, there's 
when Marwood is making his bed, you know, and Uncle Monty comes in behind him, like that's you know, you got that low angle, it's really that's like a low Dutch angle, it's really well filmed. It definitely gives you Marwood's like discomfort and fear at that situation. Um, when they see the poacher leaving the eels, you know, it's like this high angle from them, like almost like spying on him from mm-hmm. afar and it's done really well. So when, when Robinson needs to film the scene well, he does, but he removes, like there's no ego to the direction of the movie, you know, and it's, it's important because it's not about that. It's about with Nail and Marwood and their relationship with each other and just, it's, it's like how it, it would be like arguing that my dinner with Andre isn't well directed. You right. know what I mean? Like it's the I same know, idea. A, to some degree. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, um, I actually think I never thought of it like a stage play before. I think that is correct. Like now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, it's like interior cottage, like, you know, bedroom, interior cottage, kitchen, like exterior, you know, farm, you know, like, I mean, it's like, it's, you don't need that many scenes in this. So you're right. It is kind of set up like a stage play. But I, um, I actually think the direction's underrated in this. Like, I, I think you're right. I think it disappears because you're so focused on the power of these characters. Um, and they are always on the screen. And I think with now, with now has the power. You mentioned, uh, Thulis earlier, David Thulis mm-hmm. and Naked. It's like, I think this is just a, just as much of a tour de force. Sure. 100%. Um, I, although I would say maybe with now has more in line to some degree of like a less zany, Hunter Thompson, Raul Duke, and Fear and Loathing. Like, I think there's parallels between those characters. Right. It, 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 it's just much more grounded in grounded, reality. Yes, absolutely. Right. Like right. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's definitely a lot of parallels there. Um, like, if people like Fear and Loathing, they'll like this character, I think, with now. But um, I think you're so taken with that. And. And maybe even try to understand the accent sometimes because sometimes they can be a little tough. Yeah, it for, is for an English, like, like American. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you don't even notice direction. I think you're right, and it's very it, it borders between competent to really good at times. Like I mean, um, yeah, I don't understand like that like whatsoever. I think. I don't know. It seems to me if, like, that's the complaint, it's, like, you're really nitpicking right. things at that point. Um, the other thing I'll mention real quick is the music choices. Because it's, like, there's, like, I think, like, four songs that are used, like, throughout. And, like, now they're all slipping me, my, my mind. But it's, like, all along the Watchtower is used at one point. Right. Like, um, there's that Several jazz. times. Yeah. Actually, Watchtower is used. And then it's, like, there's that jazz number that's, like, at the beginning of... Um, of the movie and it's like the the music choices are are there's not a lot in it but when they use them through the kind of transition scenes or the montages it's really good like right really, i mean really good choice it's whiter shade of pale right yeah. um which plays like almost to its full like like seven minute mm-hmm. extent um while my guitar gently weeps mm-hmm. and then watchtower and voodoo right. child are played voodoo child. yeah 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 um the voodoo child is great for that like uh sequence where with nails driving home to london but it's in, again it's like all songs that i think are like bridging the end of the 60s and yeah, the beginning absolutely. of the 70s and yeah. really weird that like the beatles would allow him to yeah. like use that song because yeah. especially in like the late 80s when there was all the stuff with 
Well, I guess maybe Michael Jackson had bought the Beatles catalog right, at that yeah, point. Yeah, so that's right. probably yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. Um, and like again, like nothing is ever obtrusive into what you're seeing between Marwood and with Nail, and yeah. like because because Marwood in some ways, like even though he, you know that he feels like he's better than what he's doing. Mm-hmm. There's there's a like a crazy attraction to the idea of just being this vagrant. Like mm-hmm. when they're in the tea shop, and you know the old people. Are threatening to call the police on him. Marwood throws himself into that role, mm-hmm. and they're drunk, mm-hmm. but just as with as, just as much fervor as with Nail. Sure, and it really like Marwood has little breakdowns where, in terms of his like affection with Nail, and I think it really is with Nail like basically like he calls him a, a, a toilet trader. Uncle Monty does, mm-hmm. you know, because you know that's what with Nail presents him as is like right. this rent boy kind of. Sure. And his feeling that, like, you know, I help you all these times and this is, like, what you do is you try and, like, you know, sell my arse so we can have a sure. weekend in the country. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the fact that... I mean, that betrayal is the thing that changes it all. Like, right. To him, that's a bitch. That, that's the ultimate betrayal. And that causes them, you know, when they're going back, like, with Nail getting arrested and then presuming Ed and um, Danny being in the place and the fact that, like, they're being evicted mm-hmm. and... Just all these things that Withnail has done nothing to help him. Sure. But, I mean, that's foreshadowed early in the movie. Again, like, one of my favorite scenes with the, the hemorrhoid cream. Like, Withnail rubbing himself with right, it. Yeah. Like, Christ, it's like Greenland in here. And, like, oh, um, there wasn't much left. But, like, right. he's covered, I like, head to toe yeah. in this stuff because he doesn't care about his friend who's, sure. who's sick, number one. And who's, right. like, you know, probably needs the warmth more than he does. Mm-hmm. Um but I think, like, again, I think Grant's performance is amazing. Yeah. Um, we talked about the soft air a little bit before. You know, I think that, I think the look on Grant's face, like, there's, like, three emotions that cross his face when Marwood tells him that he got the part and that it's the leading man part. And I think it's happiness for his friend. I think it's sadness at the knowledge that his friend is going to leave. And I think it's abject jealousy mm-hmm. that why is this not me? I'm the actor here mm-hmm. not you kind of thing like right. i'm the one that because in his mind like he believes his lies to the point where like he's the guy that's put in this work even sure. though he does nothing to get to that point right. um yeah i can't i can't praise this movie enough like i really <clears throat> love this movie and it's honestly it's crazy you know bruce robinson has only directed like four movies ever and it's this it's how to get ahead in advertising both of which are great um, Jennifer 8, which is a terrible film, and uh, The Rum Diary, which I've never seen. Um, and honestly, until I looked him up the other day, I had no idea he directed The Rum Diary, even. Right. Um, but, yeah, this is just, you know, from from a character perspective, from an acting perspective, it's just a brilliant movie. Um, one of the best, like, screenplays, in my opinion, in terms of, like, nothing but dialogue that I've ever you know, ever had the pleasure of, like, seeing on the screen. Yeah, and I think the thing, ultimately, with me that I love about this movie is what I love about all great movies is that there's a definitive end to the plot of this movie with the two of them going their own ways, or really Marwood going his right. way and leaving with no behind, I suppose. But um, there's still these there's still these things you can talk about. Like, there's still these kind of unanswered questions or debatable things where you and I could 
sit here if we wanted to for another hour and kind of talk about the relationship between Marwood and Withnail right. and what that was really about. And, you know, we could go into, like, all these different themes of, like, addiction, which, I mean, the, the alcoholism in this, I mean, it was, it was certainly something I very much connected yeah. with at times, you know? Um, Just like, the fact that they're always drinking. Sure. To the point where, right. like, Withnail is drinking... Lighter paint fluid. thinner, light, lighter fluid. Lighter fluid, right. right. He's looking, I think he was looking for paint thinner. Right. It's like, yeah, he drinks lighter fluid, um, which is actually is uh, scary, scary because it's like, uh, I read Bruce Robinson, that, that friend of his actually did that. And I think he died of throat cancer um, from, at like the age of 51. And Robinson always attributed like his To death drinking the lighter fluid. To the, like, drinking the lighter fluid. Besides the like two-pack-a-day hat right. that he had, but it's like, you know, but during the lighter fluid, he, he's always attributed like that to like, um, to, the, to that cancer. But, um, but yeah, I mean like, you know, depraved at times, you right. know, like in the, in the binges of like, you know, of, of alcohol addiction. Right. Again, like these two people that live in squalor, you yeah. know, they, they live in what's basically a, a condemned building yeah. because they're tearing down the buildings around right. it. Like they show that a few times. Sure. Sure. And yet they're more than happy as soon as they get that money to go into the pub and drive. Right. Like Uncle Monty sends them to buy Wellingtons right. in town, yeah. and instead of buying the boots, they go to the pub and they right. they sure. get they get liquor. But it's like you have addiction. You have like the end of a decade. You have the, right. the you have platonic or not. You know, yeah. like friendship, relationship stuff. You have platonic and maybe an unspoken right. Yeah, like yeah. romantic. You have homosexuality during that time period. Right. You have you have all these things that we could sit here and talk about in depth. Um, and I think it's just a sign of a really great movie when you can still walk yeah. away and talk about those things. So. And it's a movie that I'll most definitely watch again in my life. Yeah. I, I watched it this time. I actually had to buy it on, on Blu-ray mm-hmm. because I couldn't find my DVD version. Um, my son and I watched it, and he was really into it. He, he liked what did, it a yeah, lot. What did he think of it? He, he thought it was really good. I mean, he really appreciated the performances. Yeah. He laughed a lot. Okay. Um, I think he was pretty horrified by Uncle Monty. <laughs> really. I, which I think it's like the reaction Uncle Monty you're supposed to have. Is yeah. Like, I feel, I'll be honest though, I feel really bad for Uncle Monty. Right. Well, I mean, he just, he... Because I don't believe he would have done it. No, because he's given a bill of sale for something that's not actually there. Sure. Like, well, I that, mean, that. But I also don't believe, despite his... No, he, because he thinks that, that Marwood is playing hard like to get. Like hard to get, right. Because it's like part of the, it's the thrill right. of the chase. Sure, right. And doesn't realize that, that you that's know, not the, yeah. that this is a straight man who's like horrified by the idea of this like old, you know, sodomite trying to right. bugger him. Right, right. To use a bunch of British. Yeah. Um, but apparently, I think, I, I think I told you, um, Robinson said that was based off of his interactions with, um, oh, the guy that directed Romeo and Juliet in the '69 version, um, Franco Zeffirelli. Yes, because Robinson Star like was right. acted in that, and yeah. you know, um, yeah, and said that, that was based on interactions with him, the Uncle Monty character. That's interesting. Yeah. That's um, that's a really good version of that's maybe too. my favorite Romeo yeah. and Juliet like really film good. version. Yeah, it's really good. Um, completely off topic, sure. but yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah, just. If you've never seen it, like, 100% recommended. I think that no matter what your tastes and things are, um, it's definitely got that British sensibility where it's not... Like, even though it deals with some uncomfortable ideas, it's never too over the top where you can't just, like, watch it with anybody, really, I think. Yeah, like, yeah, any adult. I and yeah, then, I was reading this guy, and I... Oh, I wish I would have written wrote down his name. I um, He wrote a long article about this on BFI, and uh, he, I think he probably teaches film, but he um, 
he wanted like showed this to like wildly divergent audiences. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't find anybody that couldn't find things they liked about this. Movie. Right. I don't know how it's possible. Like, right. The fact that what did you say? It's like eighty five percent critics uh, and ninety four percent critics, ninety four percent audience. Yeah. That makes sense because I don't know. Yeah. I don't have any even small complaints about this movie. There's yeah. nothing about this movie that I don't, like, absolutely love. Yeah. But, like, I would think that, yeah. Like, it's something that I feel like I could watch with my mother. Yeah. And I could watch with my kid. And I could watch with any of my friends. And right. all of them would find something that they enjoyed. Right. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect out of these movies, Frank. But um, overall, like, uh, I enjoyed Watching them. Um, All because of Night Riders, which well, didn't even make the list. Because it's not not that great of a movie. <laughs> okay, so um, that's our episode for this week. Um, remember, you can um, go ahead and like us on Facebook. Um, uh, just to kind of remind everybody, because it's been a while, like where you can find us. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on Google Play. Um, you can find us at Podbean, um, which is where we host through. Um, you can... Um, Hopefully, here in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be able to find us at like the actual uh, Two Guys Five Movies website. Um, and uh, if you have any uh, questions or lists, you can email us at Two Guys Five Movies at gmail.com. Uh, you can you know, comment on our Facebook page. Yeah, I would really, I would really like some outside suggestions at some point of like, yeah, I would too. themes or topics. Um, yeah. Not that I have any trouble or either of us of like thinking of right. themes, but yeah. it's it's always kind of cool to have someone ask you and have to try and figure it out. Yeah, because I mean we probably know each other well enough that it's like Frank can probably anticipate things from me that like I would probably come up with, you know. And yeah, um, it's true. You know, uh, and so <clears throat> so yeah, I would definitely um, love that or any feedback like whatsoever. Like right. I would love to hear any of that. Um, so coming up um, after the new year, we will have um, uh, next week. We will have the top five modern Western movies, um, which I'm interested to watch all those movies. Um, yeah, it's a good list. And um, later in the month, um, probably the 11th, we will be uh, doing a third man series uh, with uh, Hitchcock, the best of Hitchcock. And then um, at the end of the month, we will be doing the top five. B horror movies of the 1980s if you can get any more specific than that mm. um so which um, i'm really interested to see what frank actually comes up with there me too yeah <laughs> so um so that's our that's what we're looking at in january right now so um thank you for listening have a great new year yep, um, happy new year and um have a good night